From Stanford University and KZSU, this is the Stanford Storytelling Project. And I looked over at him like, hey, how you doing? And he said, oh, fine, you're going to ride that thing? I said, yeah. Well, I rode about five feet, and then I just fell on my can. <laughs> the unicycle shot out 15 feet in front of me, and I hit the ground, and I said, oh, boy. It should have been epic. 700 of my fellow classmates had just received their high school diplomas and were seated, wearing their caps and gowns, on the football field of the local community college. 12,000 of our friends and family members occupied the bleachers, clutching balloons, signs, and digital cameras, and all eyes were on me. Here I was, 18 years old, the valedictorian of the Downey High School class of 2004, delivering the speech that was supposed to be the culmination of four years of hard work and teenage angst. The only problem? It wasn't. Sure, stage fright and about 13,000 pairs of watchful eyes had pumped me pretty full of adrenaline, but as I walked around on the grass after the ceremony, I felt underwhelmed. I had just gone through the ritual that signified my transition from child to adult, but nothing had changed. I was still the same person. Sometimes a ceremony will mark a significant change, like a wedding, but oftentimes the transitions come not on a stage, but from when we face the challenges given to us from the world and from ourselves. From KZSU Stanford, this is the Stanford Storytelling Project. I'm your host, Micah Craddy. Each week we bring you stories of all kinds that explore a single question or theme. This week on the show, Rites of Passage. Three stories on the events in our lives that shape us into something new. First up, Once Upon a Unicycle. Matt Larson recalls one of the most transformative episodes of his childhood, and it happens on only one wheel. Next, in A Rose Festival by Any Other Name, Will Rogers heads home to Tyler, Texas, to film a documentary on the annual Texas Rose Festival and battles parades, beauty queens, and his own distaste for the event. Finally, I search for the real world and find a little more than I can handle in. So you want to be a reporter? This is the Stanford Storytelling Project. Stay with us. Balance, patience, and fortitude. Forget kindergarten. Everything you really need to know, you can learn on a unicycle. In our first story of the show, Matt Larson takes us back to when he became a man. Growing up, I was the youngest of three boys. My brothers, Ben and Dan, were six and eight years older than me. By most measures, it was not a huge age difference. But in my suburban neighborhood in Cincinnati, where kids are usually metered out in regular two-year increments, it was a large enough gap that people often assumed I was a mistake. My parents always assured me that this was not the case, and that they tried very hard to have me. The only reason I know this to be true is because that was their last hope for a girl. The age gap between my brothers and I was also large enough that every time I entered a new phase in my life, they were always just moving on to the next stage of their own lives. When I started elementary school, they were just starting junior high. And when I finally started high school, they had almost finished college. In this way, having older siblings was a bit like being able to predict the future. I had a clairvoyant sense that Mrs. Hoover would teach me my multiplication tables in the third grade. And my ESP told me that Mrs. Renner would make a big deal about the fact that her name was a palindrome. I also knew that the fourth grade gym teacher, Mr. Smith, would teach me to ride a unicycle. Yeah, this is Nelson Smith. Hello, one, two, three, test, 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 from Welch Elementary. Mr. Smith is actually Nelson Smith, but even now I refer to him as Mr. because this is how he introduced himself 18 years ago when I was a student of his at Welch Elementary. I simply can't break the habit, and I still remember the intimidation I felt in the presence of the man with the peppered gray hair and the large wire-framed glasses. My oldest brother Dan remembers feeling the same way. Yeah, I'd be lying if I said I wasn't a little scared of the guy when I was in elementary school. He was definitely sort of the authority figure. They didn't want to cross him, per se. My other brother, Ben, agrees. I mean, like Dan said, I think he seemed very no-nonsense. Even now, I would never dare cross Mr. Smith. The intimidation I felt as a child is still there. 
But as the years went by, and I began to think more about what Mr. Smith did for me and for my brothers, I felt a growing need to meet with him as an adult. I wanted to figure out how he got the attention of national news, and how he made the unicycle a fixture in every household in my neighborhood. So much so, that you would see packs of kids riding to school on one wheel. Perhaps a small part of me just wanted to show them that the short, overweight eight-year-old he had taught to ride had become a man. This is exactly what I set out to do. Though Mr. Smith had long since retired from teaching, I was able to track him down through the Welch Elementary Secretary. Only a month later, I was driving to his home outside of Cincinnati to pay him a visit. When I got there, he told me about how he got the idea for the unicycle program from another group in Ohio called the Hamilton Mini Circus. Went to an in-service for physical education teachers where they were performing. Uh, my wife and I went up to a practice one time and just watched them. They were, uh, I think, fifth and sixth graders. There might even been a couple seventh and eighth graders that came back. And I saw it, and it just impressed me to the point I thought, well, whoa, this is pretty neat. <laughs> Before Mr. Smith could teach a mob of fourth and fifth graders to ride, he had to master the skills himself. He went home immediately to practice riding on his own, so he could teach his students to do the same. I, I probably looked like a fool. I think I was, I don't know, 35 years old or so, out in the middle of my street, going from mailbox to mailbox, trying to get... <laughs> so instead of me doing half a gym or whatever, I didn't have spotters. I just had to gut it out and try to just launch from one and try to get to the next, you know? So <laughs> I, and uh, I can remember one time there was a neighbor across the street and I'd finally gotten to the point where I could ride 10, 15, 20 feet without falling, but I would eventually step off and fall. And I looked over at him and I said, hey, how you doing? And he said, oh, fine, you're going to ride that thing? And I said, yeah. Well, I rode about five feet and then I just fell on my can. <laughs> the unicycle shot out 15 feet in front of me and I hit the ground and I thought, oh boy. <laughs> my neighbors politely turned around and walked into the house, you know, <laughs> like, like I didn't see that, you know. <laughs> After many trips to the pavement, Mr. Smith eventually managed to work out the basic mechanics of riding. He broke it down into different steps and identified all the pitfalls. Like most gym teachers, Mr. Smith was a former athlete and a good one at that. He spent his high school years playing baseball, basketball, and football. In college, he got into gymnastics. And when he started as an elementary teacher, he founded an after-school gym club to teach students some basic tumbling skills. All of these experiences had given him a deep understanding of the mechanics of the human body and what it could do with a little bit of training. This same intuition for breaking systems down into their components and then building them back up again also worked when it came to riding a unicycle. His precise explanation of balance and posture and even the stages of riding development, make me feel like Mr. Smith could impart the ability to ride through his description alone. Even now, though he hasn't ridden in years, he is still able to describe the basic technique in great detail. The biggest thing on riding the unicycle is the front and back leg are constantly sort of working with each other and at the same time fighting each other. Then the first step would be to push a little harder time. with the front foot getting as they continue to push with the back foot. They tend to sit down until they can reverse their feet up with the other foot and get barely sitting in the seat. And once they do that, boy, they're proud. The beginning of the program was humble. No one knew how to ride it all that first year. And at a gym club show, as a finale act, we had three or four kids that finally got so they could ride around the room, go around the audience in the outer circumference of the gym as part of one of our acts. Within the following year, everybody in the school wanted to sign up and do it then. With a small army of kids ready to take on the challenge of riding, Mr. Smith began to develop the program. Though the program started at Pleasant Run Elementary, Mr. Smith and many of the students moved to the new elementary school, Welch, when it was built in 1977. The new school meant the team needed a new name. We're already established at Pleasant Run. They called themselves the Pleasant Riders then. And I had one uh, student named Barbara Dean. She was an excellent rider and everything at, at Pleasant Run. She came along with, and she jokingly one day said, well, what are we going to name this team here at Welch? We all thought, thought, she says, how about Welch Widers, ha, 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 you know, like a joke, you know, like you got a speech impediment, Welch Widers. We, it's, it sort of stuck, the kids played around with it, and we said, all right, I don't care. So, and when we would go places and tell them our name, they'd give us that double look like, Welch Wider? <laughs> What's a wider? And then he began planning more elaborate performances for the school assemblies. The one we did for the parents was just 
a lot of what we called line drills, where we would take um, 15 kids of about equal ability, and it, as soon as they, I'd say go, they'd all push off the wall and look to their left and stay in line like soldiers marching at the same pace all the way to the other end. Then down at the other end, they'd turn around to the same thing coming back. And then it got so we would stagger them, like number one, go, two, go, three, go, four, go, just to make different patterns in one thing or another. And then we'd split them in half, count off one, two, one, two. And number ones would be on one wall, two on the other wall. You see, ready, go. And they'd go towards each other and go right through each other. Well, there was a lot of different weaving around, figure eights and other things that we did that way. But the routine that we did for half times, we only had like eight minutes to go out and show everything we could do. One of the wonderful things about teaching a difficult and potentially dangerous skill to kids is that they will do anything they can to make it more difficult and more dangerous. The basic skill of riding forward had been improved. Some of the stunts the students invented. I remember one student one day came up to me and says, Mr. Smith, look at this. And he just put the seal on his chest, leaned forward onto it. He had to really bend his knees to bring him up almost to his chin because he's you know, now got his belly on the seat. And as he started riding forward, it just looked like a little sports car or something. And I thought, whoa, that's pretty neat. Let's call out the belly ride. He said, okay. So he got so he could ride around the room that way. So I said, okay, let's throw it in there. And like any good performance, there was music. It gave the show some pizzazz and a touch of professionalism. The music could make or break the performance. I had a lot of songs I ran through, like that one song of, one is the only, you know, I thought that's perfect. One wheel and all that. One is the loneliest number that you'll ever do. So I tried that one, and it just didn't have the zing, the bang, the beat to it. That and we, oh gosh, we used the carpenters and all sorts of things in the background doing all the uh, line drill stuff. And we used a lot of the Olympic fanfare stuff. As the kids first came out, they could ride and we you know, real upbeat with trumpeting and everything else. Here are my brothers Ben and Dan trying to remember what songs they rode to. We started off. But with L- LA Law was different. LA Law was. I don't remember. No. <laughs> I don't know what show that was. LA Law was. Bum, 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 bum. Oh, that's not it. No, that's it, was, da- it totally started no, off with a horn. I remember that. that that's Dallas. So I just, <laughs> it was like... <laughs> I'm sure that didn't sound right, but that's how I remember it in my head. If my brothers had trouble remembering the music, it had less to do with the passage of time and more to do with the fact that one song was so iconically linked to the Welch Whiters that all other songs paled in comparison. Oh, you know, when I hear that song today, I get chills. How I actually came across that one, I don't recall. I think it just happened to be in a bank of some tapes and things that I had, and it, I'd play them during practices and things, and that one just uh, was one that I just noticed had a little more zing to it. Can I have you each do a rendition of Axel F? <laughs> <laughs> I can't even remember it that well. You'll remember it. Over the years, a solid routine emerged, and the team was starting to get noticed. In addition to school assemblies, the Welch Widers were booked almost every Friday night of the high school basketball season. We went to other elementaries, and junior highs, high schools. And it was pretty neat to be the featured act on an assembly. The whole school packs in to just watch us go through our line drills and our routine. The thing about the unicycle show was it was sort of like a circus in that you had multiple acts going at once, right? The first couple of kids would be bouncing a basketball or going through hula hoops. Backwards riding or partner riding, like the thing where you would hold right. on to a partner and go in a circle. There'd be some people doing the teeter-totters. they go over the teeter-totter and down about a 10, 12-foot long, 4-inch balance beam. We even had the giraffes, which were 5 feet tall. The thing that was neat about those is not only just riding them, but we had another stunt where two 5-footers or giraffes would ride in a circle with a pole between them, and that pole would have a girl hanging in the center. Now, of course, that pole was up about 6-7 feet off the ground, but it was pretty neat. The Widers were even featured on local and national news. Uh, that, that was really exciting. You know, you turn on CNN News, wow. And they did a five-minute blip or so about every... Uh, 60 minutes or so for 24 hours, and we'd catch it. And you know, the kids all got their copy of that tape, and they even interviewed some of the kids about it. But for us, the most important exposure, the biggest show of the year, was a college basketball game the eight minute halftime routine for Miami University. 
Miami University basketball halftime show. The only halftime show that was a college basketball game. Here. This was the show for the year. Like the main, we would have an event. We would have the pizza party after and everything in appreciation for the Welsh Blighters. This final performance was arguably the true test of one's skill. I had my bar mitzvah at 13, but I really became a man when at nine years old, I rode flawlessly in front of 9,000 people in Millet Stadium. The Miami University game was the event of the year. All the mornings and afternoons spent practicing in the gym were carried out with this game in mind. And the practice paid off. Even in front of a bunch of jaded college students, the polished, wider routine could still bring down the house. When they came out on the floor, be it a high school or especially when we went to college games, these guys out there, some of them were 6'10", 6'11", you know, huge fellas, you know, guards, 6'4". And then our little fourth and fifth graders come out there. It looked like tiny little toys and midgets running around on unicycles. And the audience would just go, wow, look at that. And a lot of times I had some tapes that some people did of, of these performances. They'd comment, you could hear them saying in the background while we were taping, say, look how small they are. Look at that. Why, they're just little guys. One Miami success story that everyone seems to remember is that of Jamie English. Jamie rode with my oldest brother, Dan, and they performed together during one of the very first Miami shows. One show we... We did at Miami University. It really brought the house down. Everyone in the in the arena was shouting three, three, three. The crowd was really in with us. The last kid came to the three-point shot, and I, I told him never do that because we want to go with the high percentage, make sure that they know we're able to do things. Not only was he a good unicyclist, he was also a good basketball player and also, you know, a born ham. And so when Jamie got to the three-point line, he heaved it. I mean, keep in mind, kid's only 12 years old or something. He's on a unicycle, and he can throw this ball up you know, with no step or anything like that. So he went ahead and tried a three-point. It was so far back that the cameraman who was taking this for me, that he had it zeroed in close for like just the foul line forward of all these kids doing this. You couldn't even see the kids shooting this tape. You just heard everybody go, oh no, and then swish. All you could see was it go through the basket and the place went wild. We got a standing ovation. I got a tape of that one that I keep that I look at once in a while and it was just, a <laughs> that kid probably is dreaming that to this day, of how terrific that shot was. At the other end of the spectrum was my brother Ben's experience, also at Miami University. Jamie, he left the stadium in glory. I think I remember another time where I left in pretty much ignominy. We were doing the blindfold figure eight Mr. Smith tells you when to go, and there's the two gymnasts at each corner telling you when to turn. And you can kind of see about maybe, you know, six inches in front of you underneath the blindfold. And uh, so Mr. Smith told me when to go. I guess I must have just been off my cadence or something because I remember, like, got to the center of the blindfolded figure eight, and me and Aaron Fag collided. I remember, like, as soon as it happened, I got up and I finished the figure eight, and I'm pretty sure I was crying underneath my blindfold. We were lined up for the next stunt, and Mr. Smith came over and he patted me on the back and he said, it's okay, don't worry about it. During the show, I always remember that being like, he didn't have to do that, we could have just gone on and he could have found me after. He found me during the show and he said, don't worry about it, it's okay. And you're no longer captain. <laughs> This was typical of Mr. Smith's approach. He never coddled the riders, and he treated us as adults. The program was voluntary, and we could come and go as we liked. The 7 a.m. practices, in addition to the after-school sessions, mind you, were not even recommended. He just opened the gym for those of us who wanted to get some extra riding time. I'd come in an hour early to set up the gym for my gym classes, and I'd say, well, I'm going to be in there. And I'd say, if anybody wants to come in to practice in the mornings, you can. So again, there was four or five days a week that they could come in an hour early. Everybody didn't come to do that, but you could tell the ones that they were just emotionally thinking, I want to get this. I think I can do this. I don't know why the other kids were there for the 7 a.m. practices, but for me, riding the unicycle meant moving beyond the chubby, nasally kid I saw in the mirror. It meant proving to myself and my classmates that I could do things outside of the classroom. Before the unicycle, I didn't have much luck. One of the first athletic endeavors I ever undertook was the third grade track meet. This was the year before I was able to ride for the Welch Widers. This track meet was also started by Mr. Smith, and it was designed to include almost everyone in the school. Mr. Smith was very proud of this fact. I probably got more kids involved with the gym club and certainly more in the track meets because uh, I know I had one principal that we, we did a little research at a, in the um, 
lunchroom one day, uh, we had one of the grade levels in, like a fifth grade, and he says, you had your track meets, everybody? He says, how many of you were in events yesterday? And it, virtually everybody in the room raised their hand because I had it worked out so that if you were in three events, that was the limit. So everybody in that school was in these track meets. Now, how many of you got ribbons? And 75% of them raised their hands. So everybody got a chance to get a ribbon because, you know, you can excel at something. This track meet is an event that still sticks in my brain. It still haunts me. It is perhaps my first great disappointment. The first time I ever felt the sting of failure. I didn't trip during the relay or land on my face in the long jump. That's because in the third grade track meet, I wasn't included in any events at all. I remember going home that night and poring over the participant list in my bedroom, reading each name aloud as I looked for my own in the list of events. I checked it over and over and over. One time even convincing myself that I didn't see my name because the tears were blurring my vision. I certainly wasn't the best athlete in elementary school, but I thought for sure I deserved a spot in at least one event. Maybe the rope climb, or the softball throw at the very least. Looking back, and after talking to Mr. Smith as an adult, I realized that my exclusion from the track meet was probably just a mistake, but it was a mistake that lit a fire in me to ride the unicycle that next year, and to ride it well. In the two years I was in the program, I attained the level of master rider and was the fourth rider from the top in the unicycle lineup. For me, it didn't matter that I couldn't chuck a softball across the school lawn or climb a rope in under 30 seconds because I could ride backwards on a unicycle with hoops spinning on both arms across the entire length of the gym. All told, over his 29 years running the unicycle program, Mr. Smith taught over 1,800 kids how to ride. Out of all these kids, only a handful continued riding. I was no exception. Part of the reason I stopped riding was because I simply outgrew it. I had accomplished something that seemed impossible, and I felt like it was time to move on. When you walk across hot coals, you don't need to go back and do it again to prove your manhood. You've already done it, and that's proof enough. For Mr. Smith, it didn't matter that we didn't continue. He didn't start the program to teach us a useful skill. In fact, this is part of the beauty of the unicycle. It is almost certainly not a useful skill in any way. To Mr. Smith, riding was a means to an end, a way to build confidence and give us the skills needed to tackle life's problems. Well, let's everybody know that you can specialize in something and really be super at it. You don't have to be terrific at everything. Just finding out what that thing is is the whole struggle of what we go through from being a kid up into an adult <laughs> person looking for a vocation out there. At the elementary age, everybody feels like they can't do anything and everybody's making decisions for them and, oh, I don't have it. I'm so shy and don't know what to do. And I can recall one parent came to me, she says, I cannot believe it. My child has never been on any athletic team ever. And when he came home and told me he could ride a unicycle the length of the room, it was, again, like he had just won the Olympics. And though Mr. Smith spent the greater part of his life helping others with their own life transitions, the hardest part was moving on himself. I was just thought it was a neat performing thing, like a parlor trick or, or just something neat to do. It was just, um, you know, a surprise to me. And at the same time, I thought, I can't let this drop. After I left, I, I went back to teachers that had taken over after I retired there and told them, you know, I could help them get it started again, show them some of the things, how they had could build this program. But they sort of lost interest in it, that and the track meets and the gym club, all the things that I did there sort of, I always, Told Peggy it was like dropping a pebble in the pond. Once you're gone, you drop the pebble and it makes a ripple out, but after that it goes smooth again. Nobody remembers there was a pebble dropping in there. I'm, I was, I'm proud of it, and as much as I, I know between me and the kids that went out and did it, we know that, yeah, that was neat. Though I always remembered Mr. Smith as no-nonsense when I was a kid, this I-care-for-you kind of attitude was the impression he left me with as an adult. Out of the 1,800 kids he taught to ride, Mr. Smith still remembered me and my brothers. I had come here to prove to him that I had made something of myself, but Mr. Smith already knew what I would become. He just had to find a way to convince me. Fortunately, all it took was one wheel. One is the loneliest number that you'll ever do. Two can be as bad as one. It's the loneliest number since the number one. 
Matt Larson is a graduate student in the biophysics program and an assistant producer with the Storytelling Project. You can check out some of the video footage of the Welch Whiters in action on our website and on iTunes. Plastic smiles and vapid sound bites from beauty queens make pageants and debutante balls seem like prime examples of an empty ritual and make them prime targets for the disdain of snarky college students. In our second story, Will Rogers took his camera down to the Texas Rose Festival and expected no more than hairspray and thousand-dollar dresses. He saw plenty of ornate clothing, but he also learned to set his feelings aside and appreciate the role the festival plays in the lives of its participants and the community it supports. The story is told by his companion on the journey and co-producer of the film, John Ho. You look at your escort. Upstairs lessons and walking downstairs lessons at the end of this group. So, when you all walk off stage, Victoria, are you listening to me, baby doll? Pardon? When we finish with this, we're going to have some lessons on walking down the steps and walking up the steps. Arms up, please. Here we go. In the fall of 2008, my friend Will asked me to fly to Tyler, Texas to help him film a documentary about the Texas Rose Festival. He described it as a celebration of youth, beauty, and status. The young women wearing extravagant dresses. Will had grown up with this festival in his town, and he wanted to expose it to the world. I had never been to Texas, and I didn't know what a debutante was. But Will bought my ticket, and we boarded the plane. I'm John Ho, and this is the story behind the Texas Rose documentary. civic leaders discovered that one of the greatest treasures in Tyler was in their own backyards. The beautiful rose was the focus of all their efforts to bring the spotlight on Tyler. It all started with the roses. We stayed at Will's house in Texas. His family reminded me of the Brady Bunch and everyone seemed to have an opinion about the Rose Festival. We went straight to the theater to start filming. On the outside, it felt like any other building, but inside it was a whole different world. We saw hundreds of volunteers running around, coordinating a show where sophomore girls in college wear the most extravagant dresses I had ever seen. Then they walked across the stage while the audience applauded. Every dress represented something different. There was a Star Wars dress, a blue bonnet dress, a peacock constellation, a Botticelli's Venus, and a football dress. Okay, I'm representing football. It's got the Dallas Cowboys theme. I have a big cape. It's got the yard lines. I had three choices, and I chose this one, I guess. What better game to celebrate than America's most favorite Monday night sport? It seems like part of American culture I don't see in California or the world in general. As if walking across the stage marked the transition from girlhood to womanhood. But Will wanted to understand why they did it. One at a time, we started interviewing them. I just say it's like tradition. It's like a chance for us to come out and, you know, I don't know. I just thought it was just an extravagant costume, you know, so fun, exciting, get to meet people. I love to dress up, so everyone gets to dress up and kind of step out of reality and do something different. Um, my mom's best friend lives in Tyler. My mom's best friend's friend is kind of a weird situation, but she called and asked to see if anybody wanted to do it. <laughs> so I said yes. We interviewed about 10 debutantes, and it seems like each interview fell short of Will's expectations. He was frustrated, like there was some deeper motivation that he couldn't access. 
We finished filming and I turned on a tape recorder to document what he was going through. Waste of equipment, bad footage, no story, a bunch of people saying absolutely nothing to each other and smiling the whole time. He told me that he hated the Rose Festival for his entire life and that he came back to Texas to document that hate. He wanted to expose the Rose Festival as shallow and meaningless, but the story we were finding was more complicated than that. Because well, it's not doing anything. I mean, I'm shooting this documentary, hopefully reaching some deeper depth of humanity through capturing one of the very most superficial things in the world. I don't know why, but I think if you, if you point your camera at the most superficial thing you've ever heard of, you can somehow find something deep within it? I don't know. But he wasn't finding anything deep. Even though it seemed significant to the people involved, he still couldn't make sense of it. I had learned that in the past, Will's family was not involved with the Rose Festival. Will and his older brothers never participated. But in the last two years, Will's younger brother and his sister started getting involved. This may seem random, but I thought of it like Star Trek, and the Borg was assimilating Will's family, slowly pulling them into the Rose Festival tradition. In Star Trek, the Borg is like a machine disease that takes away people's sense of humanity. In Texas, I felt like Will was like Captain McCart, and had come to Tyler to fight the Borg, and that he would either bring back his family from the Borg, or he would get assimilated himself. Neither of these seemed to be happening. On the last night of filming, we were still basically where we started, asking people how they got involved. Uh, my mom was in this, and my sister, and about a hundred other cousins. Um, I had family members that were in Rosefest. I don't know, my grandmother told me about it too. My aunt was queen, my mom was a train bearer and a lady in waiting, and my dad actually escorted her. That's kind of cool. And then our whole like family, like down the line, they've been in it too. Everyone had some sort of family connection, like they were doing this thing because of their parents, but also for themselves. We talked to one girl named Hassie. Wait, is this gonna be, what is this gonna be in? It's part of the documentary, it's a, it's a student film. So Are you gonna be like making fun of Debbie Tommy's? This is Hassie. Well, it's mostly just like the, Originally, I thought it was just a superficial thing, and I was kind of embarrassed to tell my friends, and all my professors laughed at me. There's a lot of really bad connotations that go with it, but at the end of the day, it's a learning experience, it's a social thing, building relationships that'll last a lifetime. I talked to one lady today and um, she married her escort who she had never met before. And so it's, it's really something it's special. I guess it's being a girl and becoming a woman, to say the least. <laughs> so for Hassie, it was clear that she wasn't interested in doing it. But that after she started getting assimilated, she enjoyed it. Well, and I kept telling my mom, I'm doing this for you, mom, I'm doing this for grandma, I'm doing this for someone else, but at the end of the day, I have to be doing it for myself, and I have to be confident about it, and otherwise, otherwise it'll show on stage. <laughs> I thought about the way that family was important for Hassie and for everyone else that we met. It seemed clear that the tradition was passed down from parents to children, and that even though the children might not have understood it at first, they eventually embraced it. So I decided to talk to Will's parents. I wanted to know what sort of Rose Festival tradition they passed down to Will. His dad told me that when he moved to Tyler in 1980, he thought the Rose Festival was strange, and today he still thinks that is strange. His mom treats it like Santa Claus. Even though she doesn't believe that he's real, she doesn't want to take that belief from other people. It reminded me of an episode of The Simpsons, where Lisa Simpson discovers the real truth behind the legendary founder of Springfield, named Jebediah Springfield. In the car, I turned on the tape recorder and talked to Will about it. We were on our way home from the last day of production. It, it just made me think in a sense, you know, that Lisa in the story, you know, Lisa finds the truth and wants to expose it to the general public. But then she realizes that it gives something to the community. If she just blurted out who Jebediah really was, you know, it kind of destroyed the mythology, the city mythology. Do you really want to 
destroy something that helps certain people. And um, I don't know what else to say, Will. What do you think? I guess I don't have anything better that I would um, that I would do. At one point, I said. Um, But, I don't know, I guess I'm still just uh, trying to make sense of it all. I could tell that Will was emotionally exhausted. In four days of filming, we had shot over 15 hours of footage. The stress had exposed everything about Will's connection to his hometown and its town tradition. He couldn't process any of it yet, though. So six months later, I caught up with Will while he was editing in California. So what are you working on right now? So basically I'm editing footage of the Queen. The Rose Queen is the central figure of the festival. In this scene, uh, the Queen's dressmaker is standing right next to the Queen and he's describing her, her dress. Can you play it for me? Yeah, sure. Why don't you focus over here? We have the, the two doves. These are Christmas doves. And then she has five crowns down here that represent the five queens in her family. And the fleur de lis is from Kappa Kappa Kappa. Kappa Kappa Kappa. Kappa. <laughs> <laughs> These are her great loves. The, there are 75 stars on the train that represent the 75th anniversary of the Rose Festival. So it's a symbolic costume. It is very symbolic. And, uh, and done in her colors, she looks fabulous. So, I'm just wondering if you have come to any realizations about your relationship to the Rose Festival. I thought you'd ask me that. Um, I mean, you know, we spent so much time trying to figure out why these w young women were even attending this thing. What was their motivation behind getting involved, you know? The whole time, though, I never really thought about my own motivation to get involved. I mean, I guess you can go with the Captain Picard analogy and say I was out there to expose something, but really I think I just wanted to make a good movie. My biggest trouble during production was that I couldn't even visualize that movie. After some time looking at the footage though, I'm, I'm reminded by why I was interested in this thing in the first place. It's because it's interesting to look at. I guess it's just bonus that I'm able to introduce California to my hometown and its, uh, its quirky traditions. So after looking at the footage for six months, Will was able to establish a comfortable relationship with the Rose Festival tradition and appreciate the beauty of the images themselves. Just like his younger brother and sister, Will starts to get simulated. Will Rogers is a senior, majoring in film studies, and the coordinator for the show's iTunes video component. You can learn more about his documentary at rosedocumentary.blogspot.com. A rite of passage might not come with the ceremony, but it can definitely follow soon after it. In our final story of the show, I leave the safety of the university campus and bring you the tale of my first post-college job, a story full of violence, drugs, and me cowering in the bathroom. I didn't take my first post-college job for the money, or the glamour. It was just a summer job at a tiny newspaper, but I took it because the editor ended one of his emails to me with the following line, We've got murder and poverty coming out of our ears tomorrow, so I'll sign off. Well, that line and because I didn't have many other job prospects, but mainly for the murder and poverty. I don't like murder and poverty. I was just excited to get a taste of that thing college seniors timidly refer to as the real world.
I wanted to be a writer, but I didn't have much life experience to draw on. A middle-class upbringing and four years of a liberal college education had bred a desire for something gritty, like murder and poverty. Combined with my desire to write, I felt like I needed some test to see if I could hack it as a reporter out in the real world. The newspaper seemed like the perfect place to find the test. It covered a poor agricultural community north of Sacramento in California's Central Valley. The area had a few familiar sites, like a Walmart and a Starbucks, but beyond that, it was completely alien to me. On first glance, the town seemed dead or dying. Empty buildings and storefronts were scattered throughout the downtown. Billboards showing toothless addicts warned of the malady eating away at communities there and throughout the rest of rural California. Meth. The only jobs were in agriculture, and they were handled by migrant workers. There was no need for the young and the educated to stick around. The newspaper itself can be best described as scrappy, or, as others have put it, stirring. The office had been ransacked, shot at, and firebombed, and the lug nuts on my editor's car were loosened while I was there. It seemed like half the county loved the paper, and the other half hated it, with a level of loathing typically reserved for third world dictators or conservative talk radio hosts. I was laughed at in person and screamed at on the phone. If you don't want to read headlines like, why are cops holding women open for catheters, or see the bloody face of a car accident victim, this isn't the paper for you. But if you are poor, harassed, or just think someone should keep an unblinking eye trained on the local government, consider a subscription. I wasn't alone in my quest. Joining me at the paper was a friend from college, Rahul. Rahul and I weren't particularly close at the time, but we decided it made sense financially to live together. The complex Rahul and I chose to live in was not the nicest place, but it met our most important qualification. It was cheap. The parking lot was unpaved, and it was rare if we didn't get at least two police visits a week, but that doesn't matter so much when college loans need to be repaid. The only thing that really worried me was the pack of children that roamed the grounds. The main group of them lived with their single, haggard mother in the apartment below me. To my eye, the kids were from 3 to 13, and they were fearless. The youngest of them approached me as I walked the grounds, or came up the stairs and knocked on the door of my second-floor apartment. One of their favorite games was, let's throw rocks at each other, and they liked to play it right next to my car. Rahul and I had no furniture, so we negotiated with our landlord to get beds, desks, and a kitchen table. The desks and table were normal enough, but the beds were just inflatable mattresses. That was the extent of our furnishings. The only item in the living room was a box of books that Rahul had brought. Not that it mattered. It was doubtful that we were going to do much entertaining. I stayed in the dorms throughout college, and I was looking forward to living in an apartment like a mature adult. I had always been messy as a child, and I wanted to keep the place as neat as possible. I also had dreams of cooking. I solicited recipes from my family, and my sister-in-law even sent me a basket with Bisquick and, at the suggestion of my brother, General So's chicken marinade. I envisioned coming home from the paper at night after a hard day of digging out the truth and cooking simple but elegant three-course meals. I knew cleaning and cooking would be difficult enough for me, but I soon found they were going to be the least of my problems. My first story at the paper was a simple one. The editor called me over and told me to write a brief article on the wildfires in the surrounding counties. It was a boring assignment, but sure, I said, I can do that. I turned back towards my desk and walked quickly to the bathroom. I didn't throw up or anything. I just sat on the toilet and read press releases. All I needed to do was call up some people and ask a few questions. The trouble was, I didn't know what questions to ask. I didn't know how to do anything. After a few minutes, I calmed down and returned to my desk. I readied myself to make my first phone call and tried to squash the shame I felt for having to ready myself to make my first phone call. The calls went fine and I wrote about as good of a story as you can about fires that aren't actually in the area you cover. But my flight to the toilet had replaced my initial euphoria with a healthy dose of fear. 
I wasn't afraid I'd be able to write quick news items. I could chalk that up to first date jitters. What worried me was how I would respond when I had to cover that real world I was desperate to see. I started to build my confidence back up the next couple weeks. I was writing a story on special education funding in the county. The districts were blaming the county for sudden payment spikes called billbacks, and the county was blaming them on the largest district. Everyone I talked to told me different things, and I was running around in circles. Some officials lied, some let me believe lies, and many others turned out to be completely clueless. I didn't figure out what was actually happening until the very end, much longer than it probably should have. But I did figure it out, and I printed the story. I realized that at some point, my stomach had stopped churning before I picked up the phone. My fear of calling up sources was replaced by a burning desire to figure out what the hell was going on. It felt good. Give me a fedora and call me a newshound. I was on the trail. I was unstoppable. I was on track at the office, but things weren't going quite as planned back at my apartment. Far from becoming a master chef, I had only cooked one meal, baked chicken with an Italian dressing marinade. It actually tasted good, but almost all of my meals came from a market around the corner from my office. Chicken tacos at lunch and a steak torta for dinner. Cheap and delicious. Occasionally I fried eggs, but the only pan we had bought was a wok. We figured it would be more adaptable than a frying pan. I discovered it's really difficult to fry eggs on a curved surface. We still had not purchased any furniture, besides a computer chair Rahul bought at Walmart. But nevertheless, our apartment began to fill with trash. One day, late in the summer, I sat down at the kitchen table to describe the place in a journal I was keeping. Here are some excerpts. Our bathroom is now covered with hair. The counter, toilet, and bathtub rim are covered with a light dust of shaved hairs. In the corners of the floor, larger hairs have collected and started to clump. We use an old beach towel as a bath mat. It has not been washed since I've been here, and I do not think I'll ever wrap myself in it again. Next to the kitchen table is the box from Rahul's leather office chair, which has become our trash can and has never been emptied. It is overflowing with plastic bags full of more trash, an empty box of wine, a Cheez-It box, a box of wheat thins, an empty box of donuts, another carton of cigarettes, a ramen noodles wrapper, fast food bags, and an assortment of plates, plastic utensils, napkins, and balled up pieces of aluminum foil. The countertops are covered with a flat of cup of noodles, a box of Indian spices, dirty plastic bowls, a soup can, a piece of paper covered with a pile of cigarette butts, a stack of recipe cards, unused, a box of Bisquick, a bottle of General Tso's sauce, both also unused, an empty tub of yogurt, a cheese grater with cheese stuck in the holes on a plate, a roll of toilet paper, a container of salt, a box of raisins, a rolled up bag of granola, mini napkins, and, in most places, a residue of spent oil from Rahul's cooking and my spilling his spent oil. My apartment was not the beautiful world I had imagined myself inhabiting, and that extended to the rest of the complex. The family that lived below us was frequently on my mind. All day the mother sat out on the porch smoking and yelling at her kids. Not that I could judge her. There was no husband in sight and she had a lot of kids to deal with. Mainly, I just felt sad for her and her family. I occasionally said hi in passing, but for the most part I avoided contact with them. I didn't know what to say. I was uncomfortable walking to my car at home, and I was soon to rediscover discomfort at work, when I got a chance to take a step closer to contact with that real-world test I was seeking. My editor assigned me and Rahul to write a story on a homicide. The victim, a middle-aged laborer, was described to me by one friend as a nice guy when he was sober and drunk. He was like anyone else. Well, not quite like anyone else. He had been arrested numerous times for public intoxication, harassing police officers, assault, and he had meth in his system when he died. His longtime girlfriend had even accused him of sexually harassing her daughters, though he was never convicted. He didn't seem like a great guy, but still, getting the back of your head bashed in while you're out walking your dog at night is a tough way for anyone to go. I was sharing the story with Rahul. He had a little more journalism experience than me, but nothing like this. Our editor tracked down the location of one of the girlfriend's daughters. He told Rahul that she would be at work at the AMPM that evening, and that Rahul should go talk with her. I was relieved my editor hadn't told me, 
the prospect of walking into an AMPM to ask a girl about a murdered man that might have molested her terrified me. But then I started to feel that familiar sensation of shame. The whole reason I'd come to this town and this job was to get baptized in the fire of real journalism and emerge victorious. At the time I was reading Once Upon a Distant War, about war correspondents charging into the bedlam of Vietnam, armed with only pen and paper. Here I was, afraid to talk to a girl in a convenience store. I went to Rahul's room and asked if he wanted me to go with him. He quickly said that I could go if I wanted, but it would be awkward if we both went. I still didn't want to do this, but I felt compelled to at least make some sort of effort. So we flipped a coin. I lost. My breathing quickened when I pulled up to the AMPM. I was scared as hell, but also a little excited. This was it. The real thing. I was a journalist. I walked inside and saw an employee talking with a friend near the slushy machine. She was about my age and had a lip ring, matching the description I'd been given. I didn't really know what to do, so I walked around the store like I was browsing, fighting the very strong urge to flee this already awkward situation. After a while, she went back to the counter and started ringing up customers. I contemplated buying something, but decided it would be unprofessional to walk up to her with a big gulp and a bag of chips. When I got to the counter, I explained to her what I was doing. I was not smooth, and what's worse, I could watch myself conducting the interview in a security monitor positioned right behind her. It felt like one of those out-of-body experiences you hear about, where people say they saw themselves on the operating table. Except, in this situation, I was the surgeon, and not a very skilled one. The girl told me the murder victim was not a nice guy. Yeah, I've heard a lot of mixed things about him, I mumbled lamely. She replied, well, I'd know. I lived with him for ten years. I had to go into foster care because of him. I quickly asked the questions I needed and bolted the store. I was a bit shaken, but my heart pounded in exhilaration, though that didn't last long. I really hadn't done a good job, and in the end, Rahul and I didn't even get the story. Our editor told me later that it was a mistake to assign it to us in the first place. It was a blow to my pride, but I can't really argue with him. I had no idea how to investigate a murder, but what I cared about was that I had the guts to try. The summer still wasn't over yet, but I hadn't packed it in. I hate feeling awkward and uncomfortable, but I was still out there, looking for the story that would push my limits and give me that test. Something hard with drugs and violence, and that X-factor making it morally ambiguous. I soon found it, or rather, it found me. One afternoon, a woman called me and claimed that the county jail had withheld medical treatment from her over the weekend. She was being held there because she had hit her husband in a moment of rage. The woman had hepatitis C, contracted from her time as a meth user, though she told me she had been clean for a while. I called up some people at the jail, did some investigating, wrote a story, and thought that was the end of it. A couple days later, I got another call from the woman. She told me she had temporarily lost custody of her children a few weeks before when she had slapped one of her daughters. She was released and no charges had been filed against her, but her two daughters were still with a foster family. She wanted me to come out to her house for an interview she said her lawyer was useless and thought maybe I could help her get her kids back. I didn't know a whole lot about this woman, and the little I did know did not make me very sympathetic to her case. She told me it was her hep C medication that made her irritable, but now she was done with it. She was reformed, she said. She now read the Bible and walked the straight and narrow. So you say, I thought. But I agreed to come to her house to do an interview. As I pulled up at her house, my chest felt heavy, like at the AMPM. But if I chickened out here, I couldn't buy a Snickers bar and act like a regular customer. The woman's home was a rundown farmhouse. I imagined it probably looked really nice at one point in time, but that point had long passed. The porch was weather-beaten and sagging. The paint peeled in some places and was completely absent in others. Things did not improve as I walked inside. It made my apartment seem like a good housekeeping photo spread. In high school, I had spent a year working as a carpet cleaner with my father. During that time, I only saw one carpet worse than this. It was in a slum hotel that we were cleaning for free, because the family that lived there had lost their mother and father in quick succession. We worked on the floors for about an hour, 
but the carpets, once green, still looked black. The woman gave me a tour, and the rest of the house had a similar appearance. The bathroom smelled foul, and the kitchen was a mess. I pictured the woman's two daughters in a clean house with the foster family, which, from what I had heard, was treating them well and wanted to keep them. I sat down in a threadbare chair and listened to the woman plead her case. She showed me character letters attesting to her parenting skills and the books she read from each night. She explained to me that she slapped her daughter only after finding out the girl was using hard drugs. In the other room, her 18-year-old son sat in front of the TV. I went in to speak with him and asked about the foster parents taking care of his sisters. He told me he thought they were trying to buy his sister's affections. Once they get custody, he said, they'll treat them bad. What if they're just nice people, I asked. He shook his head. No, he said. I have a lot of friends in foster care. They hate it. Should your sisters come home, I asked him. Yes, he said. I'll be here. Nothing bad will happen. I'm the peacekeeper. He told me the fight between his sister and mother was partially his fault because he was not there to stop it. Back at the office, I sat in front of a blank document on my computer screen. I did not know what to write. I couldn't decide if the woman deserved to have her children back or not, or whether that was even relevant to my story. Looking back on it, that's the story I should have written. Instead, I published, as best I could, a straight accounting of the facts. I justified it with the argument of journalistic neutrality, but that was a cop-out. The story scared me. I thought back to a scene at my apartment complex. One day I was walking to my car, and I passed the apartment below mine. On the door was a note reminding the mother to call someone. One of her small children, too young to read, saw the note as I walked by and screamed in panic, No! We're moving again! I winced, like someone hit me. This family, which had been a curiosity to me at best, suddenly became real. I wondered what the kid had gone through to think he was losing his home just because a scrap of paper was taped to his door. This is what I had been looking for, the reason I had taken this job. But like with the story on the woman wanting her daughters back, I didn't know how to handle it. I could have just told him what the note said and calmed his fears, but I couldn't open my mouth. I just kept walking. If those experiences were tests, I'm pretty sure I didn't pass them. At least that's what I thought at the time, but now I'm not so sure. Maybe when you're young and trying to experience the world, you have to muddle through a bunch of experiences you aren't prepared for and fail again and again. As long as you don't quit and you keep asking for more, you can call it a win. That brings us to the end of the show. Today's program was produced by Jonah Williams and myself. Thanks to Matt and Will Rogers for their stories. Original music was performed by Volunteer Pioneer, whose music can be found on Stanford iTunes, Kissing Johnny, and Noah Burbank. For their generous financial support, we'd like to thank the Stanford Institute for Creativity and the Arts, Stanford Continuing Studies, the Program in Oral Communication, and the Hume Writing Center. KZSU would like to thank the law offices of Fenwick and West for their continued underwriting support. Remember that you can find a podcast of this and every episode of the Stanford Storytelling Project on Stanford iTunes and on our website, storytelling.stanford.edu. In tandem with this week's program, we'll upload a short documentary for you to watch on our iTunes space. Produced in Stanford's documentary film program, this seven-minute film tells the story of a woman's unexpected transition from daughterhood to motherhood. It was directed and produced by Evan Briggs, and you can watch it for free by searching for the word daughterhood in the iTunes store. Tune in next week, same place, same time, for Rewriting History, stories of the people for whom the past is not passed until it's been a little bit edited. 
For the Stanford Storytelling Project, I'm Micah Craddy. It's your fault. You've got some range here with this.